Welcome to the Grey Eye and Disability Arts online podcast, Disability And, bringing together thoughtful discussion and debate. This month, Colin Hambrook chats with actor and producer Matt Fraser about Cryptales, a series of six disability-led monologues curated by Matt and recently broadcast on the BBC. This podcast contains strong language. So, Matt Fraser, lovely to see you again after all this time. And um, Cryptales is a, a real watershed moment, I think, in, in um, British television. And um, very exciting to see so much um, press coverage as well. Um, 23 mentions in national press. That's got to be first, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, by the way, lovely to be here, Colin, talking to you again. Um, I, I would agree with you there was a watershed on it, but I don't think it was all Cryptales doing. Um, I think Cryptales hold their own. They're good quality dramas. You know, surprise, surprise. You, me and all the Disability Arts Online um, audience. Um, we all know this shit anyway, right? But, um, but, but, you know, when you do allow a disabled person to write a thing <laughs> and you let the disabled actor do it and then you get nice what we might have called BBC high quality drama treatment on it. Um, it looks really good because people expect stuff to do with disability to be awkward and embarrassing and maybe a bit shit because the people who ham-fisted our treatment beforehand didn't know what they were talking about. So people come with these lower expectations and then into that you put COVID and the, the reaction from the performing industry, which is to, to reinvent the monologue through Zoom as a viable form of entertainment. Well, we've all got used to sort of slightly low quality recorded single person dramas that are clipped together, like David Tennant and Thingy did that um, pretending to rehearse for the national thing. And that's as good as they could get it. But then our thing came along, having been filmed beforehand, in like, i.e. inverted comes proper telly studios, and uh, of course, it seemed like fantastically lush and lavish and high quality. Plus, it was all the good stuff, you know, the, the authenticity. So I think reason, some of the reasons we got those 23 press mentions, Colin, are because of circumstance due to the times we find ourselves in, plus the awesomeness that is Cryptales. Because I'm not going to take any steam away from them. They were brilliant. And, 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 and I was the lucky guy who got to curate them, you know. It could have been you, Colin. And I know the results would have been very similar. Different, of course, but the same high quality. You know, you and me have been around the block a bit. We're long, longish in the tooth. We are. We know, we, we know what's what, and we know what's shit, and we don't want to let that happen again. So all that was playing on me a bit. How, how did the whole Cryptales thing come about? Okay, well, it came from a legacy, which was Mark Gatiss originally did a thing called Queers, which is a series of gay men's monologues set in a gay pub. BBC loved it, it went really well. Somebody obviously thought, <clears throat> what about women? So the following year, Vicky Featherston, the artistic director at the Royal Court Studio, um, got to do Snatches, which was an anthology of female stories. Um, they asked her, because at the Royal Court, there's a lot of new, good women writers, and it does all come from the writing, Colin, I do think. Um, and so they got some fantastic writing. 
and they managed to get Jodie Comer, you know, Villanelle from Killing Eve, oh, wow. to be in one of them. The one, Bovril Pam, that's the one I would recommend to anyone to watch if they wanted to see Summer Snatches. So the woman that produced that successfully was called Debbie Christie. She works for ITV Studios. And she approached me and said, if I can get the green light on the commission, will you curate a series of six monologues to do with disability? <laughs> I was like, yeah, sure. Thinking, well, that's never going to happen, is it? You know, sure, love, give us a ring when, it, you know, sure. Give us a ring when, um, you know, they get to the next level. A year goes by. I get a call. She's like, we got green lit. I'm like, you what? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. But then, of course, I was like, gulp. And then she helped me. Um, I knew loads of people, but I also know that I'm in my 50s and there's a lot of people I don't know anymore, you know? And I went to Grey Eye Writers Database, the BBC Writers Room Disability Database, other databases, looking for new voices. And we pitched for writers and writers pitched and we got a short list and it was very difficult because there were some great writers that I wanted to employ, but I couldn't. I just want to give a big shout out to Rosaline McDonough who's a oh, viciously yeah. good writer with a disabled traveller woman point of view voice. Who else has got that? No one. Her pieces are extraordinary. Anyway, she didn't make the grade um, because ultimately I felt because the, not because it was so niche the audience wouldn't get what she was doing and it was going to America. Um, and we went with Jackie Hagen instead. And I'm, in retrospect, I'm very glad of that because Jackie's working class scouser disabled the state living Northern voice is something that the BBC needed up in a big style. Um, but just as a coda to that, Rosalind just got commissioned by the Abbey Theatre in Dublin to write a play. <laughs> but I'm so thrilled about that. Anyway, um, so, that, so, we, found, so we, got, we got the writers... Then we were like, oh, no, we've only got six. What are we going to do? Do one deaf, one blind, one wheelchair? You can't do that. That's a rubbish way of going around it. So we just said, I just said to all the writers, look, it's got to be within the last 50 years. It's got something to do with disability. If possible, the story will pivot on something to do with disability. Don't make it safe. Don't give me something boring that people are expecting to see. Otherwise, do your worst. And they, I was stunned with what they came back at. And most of them went, and I want this actor to do it. And of course, being that the nature of disabled actors is they were all available. <laughs> Even Liz Carr and Ruth Madeley were available, which is a crime. But anyway, um, and so we got, we got, we got the, pick, the tip of the crop, you know. Um, and we only auditioned one, which was Carly Houston, auditioned and got Matilda Ibini's The Shed. It was for a black woman wheelchair user. And do you know how hard it was for me, a 50-year-old white guy, who really wants to do his best to find 10 black wheelchair-using actors, women actors? That alone shocked me and made me realise, boy, you know, we've got some work to do here. However, as with always with auditions, the best prepared actor got the job. Um, Carly Houston also just, the camera loves her. And, you know, I know that sounds cheap and nasty, but when you're making telly, these things do count. You know, I'm not talking about pretty or conventional notions of cosmopolitan ideal, nothing like that. I'm just talking about sometimes a camera loves your face and sometimes they don't. It's just the way it is. Um, so that's how we ended up doing that. And then all the team, the production, all of that stuff was basically between the directors, which was Ewan Marshall, Amit, um, and um, Amit from Grey Eye, and Jenny Seeley from Grey Eye. Uh, originally I guess they were all from Grey originally and between them and production which was Debbie Christie they got the crew and team together 
Um, and then finally, long answer, but this is how it got together. Um, Debbie said, they're all able-bodied. You've got to do the talk on the beginning of day one. And I was like, oh God, okay. And I found myself saying, you know, I had a prepared sheet, I just threw it away. And I just said, guys, I know all the disabled people involved on a personal level. So I could talk generically, but I'm just going to talk how I know I can talk because it's quicker. None of these guys are going to be offended if you ask a stupid question. Please ask stupid questions. If you don't, the, the number one thing you mustn't do is second guess and then panic about what you've decided is going to happen. Just ask. It will all be fine. We'll all get on like a house on fire. And that's exactly what happened. It was fine. You know? It's, it's always that fear of disability that gets gets in the way um you know it was great to see so many of uh of the the press um i think Su- susie fay and brian donaldson um you know saying why hasn't this happened before mm. you know mm. that we, we've got uh, yeah. disabled directors writers and actors um and it, it you know it still feels like we're you know we're kind of we're still trying to get on the bus in some ways we are and but and then and the other thing that happened during covid i don't know whether you noticed but off the back of black lives matter um which on the on the on the trajectory i'm talking about came off the back of oscars so white which came off the back of me too movement you know there was definitely like an awareness you know the young people have got political again ain't they you know it's good um oh thank god finally um and um <laughs> So, of course, what happened was somebody went, oh, fuck, disability is a diversity. What? It's a diversity? Well, we must apply all these diverse things to it. And suddenly we got upgraded. Did you notice? It was really weird. We always knew that, of course. But suddenly the mainstream decided that we had to be included in the lists. And then and then Living Cryptos came out just at that time. So I really did benefit from the cultural zeitgeist that, the shift in perception around disability that's been happening. You know, Cryptel's really benefited from that. Um, and, and the other thing I wanted to say was, yes, the journalists are all so much more on message now. You know, the, the, my, the one illustration I have is that I got asked in America, because they went out in America first, to do an interview with something really scary for this old fella called Pop Sugar. Yeah, it's a, like a gossip website. I was like, oh, God, OK, I'll do that. He's really scared. This lovely young mixed race gay man uh, opened the Zoom call. He said, first of all, let me say, I've just watched all six of them back to back, took notes, and I'm stunned. That was a bloody change because normally they just skim through it, don't they? And then he goes, he looks at me really seriously. He goes, do you know what? I don't think I've ever seen a black disabled woman in a wheelchair express love for another woman on television. I don't think that's ever happened before. And I was like, yeah, thinking, okay, no, I wasn't expecting that for the first question. Um, yeah, wow. Uh, and then I just thought, yeah, these guys are really clued in now. We don't have to do all the explaining anymore. Or actually, and say, sorry, it's not handicapped, it's disabled. You know, <laughs> we don't have to do that anymore. No, no. The, the one thing that I, I did notice was um, there were two of the reviews in The Times, Jack Melvin and Carol Midgley, both felt compelled to give the Latin names for impairments yet again, which was yeah. the one disappointment, I think. Um, you know, apart from yeah. apart from that, the critique, you know, the critique of the of the format and some of the direction, it was all really constructive criticism. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And very fair. I mean, we have to be criticized just with everybody else, don't we? You know? Mm. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 I agree with you. It's definitely a watershed moment. We're, we are upon a watershed moment right now as we speak. You know, the things that we've been banging on about for 30 years are about to happen. Not how we imagined it, of course, but those things are going to happen. When I was young and even more full of ego, I did imagine how my Oscar acceptance speech would go as a naive 29-year-old. I'm 58 now, and I know I'm never going to do it. But I think Ruth Madeley might. Ruth Madeley, yeah. Yeah, and Jackie yeah. Hagan. Jackie Hagan so impressed me. Um, I'm kind of almost kind of reticent to talk about it but of course you know the one uh really sad um sad criticism of of cryptos was was what happened with the disability news service and um you know yeah. why why does the disability movement always feel compelled to to make a campaign out of you know angry of twitter sort of campaign out of rather than in, you know engaging in a much more honest and and direct way with well first people. off i do regret uh, the way i initially reacted to john it was a bit of knee jerk he's quite an aggressive um the way he puts things is pr provocative because he's a journalist and he wants you know action i understand that um but when i, I explained what i thought which was that the piece the real deal by tom wentworth is a savage indictment of how ridiculous the benefit system has got whereby performing a cliched version of disability is more likely to get you your rights than actually being genuinely eligible. And he, and he came back at me with an even longer email, um, which really just said roughly the same thing. So I said, you know what? We shall have to agree to differ, John. Because I just didn't want to talk about it anymore with him because I could see I wasn't going to change his mind and he wasn't going to change mine. However, and it was a to and fro, you know, um, he did, turn it into a bit of campaign. He did always CC Liz Carr and Tom and you and the producer and Debbie, the executive producer at the BBC, um, you know, in a kind of stirring the furor kind of way. I know that in his heart, his intentions are, are good. Um, as I hope he knows mine are. And if I will say one thing, I defend totally Tom Wentworth's script. That's the kind of writer Tom is. You get cheeky little rights and wrongs in his stuff. And that's so delicious. And that's why I love his stuff. Yeah. But, you know, next time, if I was ever going to do a, a story or be involved with a story where there was a benefits, um, is he or isn't he? Are they or aren't they? I might look a little deeper into that and flesh that character out a little bit better. I might. But but Tom needn't, because what's so sad is the original version of that, which was three pages longer, as original versions are want to be, mm -hmm. was perfectly explained the situation. It was a whole thing, savage on the DWP. Like, it really stated its case. But unfortunately, it was the least dramatically successful part of the monologue. And so it got cut. And out with the water, a little bit of the baby got chucked out as well, so to speak, with the bathwater there. I, I still thought it really came across as as a critique of the the Kafkaesque nature of the, of the PIP system, and and just the the heinous fact that the that the DWP have got this page up on their yeah yeah up on their their website saying you know shop your neighbour, shop them now yeah yeah I know. Um, you know I, 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 
it, we would be, uh, you know, if the Russians did the same thing, we we would be down on them like a, a ton of bricks for break, you know, human rights issues. And yet, in this country, it's perfectly acceptable. And yeah. and 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 that's that same realization just doesn't occur to the British public. I mean, I've spoken to older black uh, people about this who are in in the business in the arts. And they say, you know, we, we all recognise it. Those of us are the uh, political, which is that if you're never represented and then suddenly you are represented, you want your rep- the representation to be like you want it to be. Because, you know, you, finally there you are being represented, but it's not what you want. And you get angry. And then you instead of having to go at the system that stopped any other representation happening for the last 20 years, you stab the person who did it. I mean, white, straight able-bodied heterosexual middle-class men have had so many versions of them shown to us in literature that we as a nation will take any representation of that because we've got all the other ones to counter it with but when you haven't got anything else to counter it with I can appreciate that if it's not how you see it and how you passionately politically think it should be it can get a bee in your bonnet yeah however I wish they'd seen our point a bit better. <laughs> I really do. You articulated it the best. I, c- I could see how it, it hit a nerve for, for a lot of disabled mm-hmm. people. Who, yeah, it who, taught me a lesson. Who are in, the, in that position. And I, I, ca- I kind of thought that there, there should have been a, you know, the BBC should have done what they do with serious critical issues and, 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 and give a... Um, uh, give out a warning um, at the beginning and, and also a list of um, places that you can go to for support if you're affected you know by the issues. You're completely right, Colin. That's exactly what should have happened. That it might actually tip the balance the other way, I think. I cannot, you know, I have to, and I was the curator. I got paid. I am responsible for some of that. And I, I regret it. And I do apologise for that aspect. But I do not apologise for Tom's script which I still think is really good. Yes. Yeah. 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 Ab- absolutely. I, I, and um, I, I, th- I thought the, just the, the breadth of the monologues as well was just yeah. absolutely breathtaking, you know, the, and uh, you know, going, going back to the, going back to the reviews. I mean, there was some, I think that the only one that was a bit kind of groany was, was, um, in the Guardian, Ewan Ferguson, where you know where he said he said uh, Crypt Tales was a space to remind viewers again, sigh, that a person in a wheelchair does not have to be addressed in hush puppy tones. Um, that mm. I th- I think that was that was the only one that I thought. But even he um, got the real deal, and and the way it exposes. Uh, the Kafkaesque nature of the PIP assessment system. Yeah, um, yeah. Really. That was that was the one sort of unfair bit. I mean, that they were all four or five star. And yeah, no, the pull quotes list, mate, is nuts. I've got for my first bit of writing on TV. I've got you know witty, furious, heartfelt. Not a word is wasted. Deliciously nuanced. I've got all these things I could if I wanted to put at the bottom of my little email signature. <laughs> Not that I'm going to. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I could, I'm pleased as punch with the with the with the attention it got, but more of the knock on and the doors that it has opened 
which really has surprised me, Colin. Um, suffice to say, in a year's time, there's going to be a lot of disability stuff on television. And actually, some of it's going to be really good because I've just read some of it. I mean, oh, my God. Have you read any of Annalisa Dinella's work? Do you know her? I don't, no, no. She's a, a visually impaired writer, late 30s, mid 30s, who come out of a BBC Writers' Room programme, writes about visual impairment. I just read a pilot for a thing and I cried five times, five separate times. She's such a good writer. And, and, and this is mainstream stuff now. You know, these are mainstream people grooming her to do a television series. You know, it's a very exciting time, Colin. The writing's great. Can, can you say more about what's coming next? As, as What I can say is that me, you and Marshall, who was the director of three of the monologues, and the lovely Jack Thorne, most famous disabled writer in the world, uh, have got together and done a, knocked up a pitch for a series of half hours because I felt that the industry don't still quite trust disabled writers enough to commission them to do series, but they're good enough and they're, they're experienced enough. A monologue isn't going to give them people the trust. Ditto a duologue isn't, which might be the natural next step to a monologue. After all, all drama, drama basically is interaction between people. So one would think that, ah, oh, two people talking, great, drama. Well, actually, yeah, but it's not going to convince the TV commissioners that the writer can do a full drama. They're still going to go, I don't know, you see. And so, so, I'm think, so I just said to Ewan and Jack, let's just pitch for half hours, straight off. They both immediately agreed. Jack just put, uh, suggested another frame we put on it. It's getting to the point where I can't really divulge too many details. So to say, to our surprise, when we sent this pitch out, several people responded positively. And one company, <clears throat> a very well-known drama producing company, at the commercial end of the television, immediately just came on board. No caveats. Just said, yeah, we want to do it. Let's make this happen. So wow, we're now, wow. we're back at the look, looking for writers stage. There are specific writers we're looking for. We, we feel that whilst talent is the most important thing, at this point, experience is going to start counting for stuff. We, it's not like we can mentor all the, or co-write with the writers. They've really got to be able to hold their own. Um, and so we just literally, I'm telling you this as it's happening, farming out certain people, um, a sort of basic writer brief <clears throat> for pictures to come in by the end of Jan. So I, I, I've got no guarantee this is going to work, but you know what? Because of the phone calls and the people have gone, what are you doing? I don't, I know, no, 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 I'm interested in that. Will you, will you tell us all about that? I put on the posh voice when I say that to denote how, how high up a floor it is in, in the building. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I'm like, oh, okay. Suddenly we're the hot thing. Suddenly it's all changed, and they so, want uh, it up them. Great. So to to quote your monologue, you say uh, fifty father could be disabled. Yeah, you might you say, start seeing that. Yeah, we might start seeing that. I mean, yeah. I, I might have. Th I thought it was um, you know in interesting that a couple of the the, the press quotes kind of pulled pulled that quote out yeah i found that was interesting too it wasn't you know it was, you never know what they're going to pull out but that one i suppose is a, a little poignant that one i suppose yes yeah mm. yeah yeah and how how was it because i kind of recognized so much so much of what you were talking about 
in, in <laughs> yeah, audition yeah. <laughs> in, in the uh the the interviews that you did with uh alan sutherland and yes of course <laughs> how how was it kind of performing your own story uh, it's weird when you're an actor writer because when you're a writer you're writing you don't think oh i'll look great doing that bit i'll write a little bit more of that bit you some i I, I don't, I, you just don't serve the actor's ego when you're writing. You just write the good writing. And then when he, when he approached it as an actor, I actually needed a director to, to tell me how to do it. I mean, I thought I knew how to do it, but because I'd written it, there was no real interrogation of how I was going to do it because I made some assumptions because I'd written it. So of course I knew best, but that wasn't the case because directors are always worth their weight in gold. And Ewan, who's a director I trust very much, you know, hauled me over a few coals, as he should have, uh, made me look at things in a different way. A little bit of rewriting then happened. And we proceeded and got to a point where I was able to really give it my full performance. Um, but he discussed how he wanted me to do the front on wide shot, the close up, the asides. You know, that's the friend you're talking to. That's this so-called audience. Over there is when it's the director or something. And, you know, we... we, we because I had many different people I was talking to and I don't do big announcement segues. I just suddenly am talking to the other person. And so he felt that that would be, make it easier for people to <clears throat> you know, get older and stuff. So, so yeah. And Jackie Hagen, you, it's a shame you can't ask her the same question because she writes for herself as well. Um, what I loved about her performance was that it was an actor's performance. What Jackie did though, and you know, again, you and directed her, and they really bonded, in part because they're both amputees, but actually more personality-wise. I think there's just him being an amputee meant she could relax and not think he was a tosser, um, you know, um, was that he eked out a proper acting performance from her because she's a really good actor. You know, that shit was deep. Yes, um, and it wasn't, yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't that kind of breeze over it, performance poetry performed on stage to a crowd style. It was very intimate and here in the frame. You know, yeah, yeah. I was so impressed with her. I, I personally have great hopes for her. I think a lot, I know for, for a fact, a lot of the television people were very excited by her, you know, a new yeah, voice and all yeah. that. I really think she's an important voice. Yeah, yeah. Working yeah. class woman who's rejected notions of, you know, the Cosmo stuff, very articulate and, you know, a constant relationship with pain-killing drugs that are also affect mood infectors. And she, she's such a complicated entity, that one. I could sit and watch Jackie for forever. Yeah, yeah, me too. Me too. And she's got a great knack of just coming out with stuff that you would, you would just never expect. And she, I think she had probably throughout, through the whole kind of Cryptow series, she, she probably had some of the the best lines. Um, oh man, some of the lines she's got. That The one that always sticks with me is, you know, like those 12-year-old boys who are holding their end of their sleeves in case their feelings fall out. <laughs> who says that? <laughs> I mean, what a phrase. Yeah, you know, I yeah. just love her. I love her. Yeah, yeah. Um, drug, drugs are only good if you get not to be on them sometimes. Yes. God, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, going, I, I, sort of going back to, um, I, I, again, another line from your monologue, um, that, uh, 
it, it seems that being disabled and difficult is par for the course. I mean, I th- we we want to see more disabled baddies, don't we? Oh, you know, God, yes. the, 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 but disabled baddies that don't kind of fit that kind of stereotypical kind of Shakespearean f- framework of what a disabled mm. baddie is like. Yeah, I mean, I have two examples of ever of playing disabled baddies. One was Richard III. Um, and, you know, as an actor, you get there. You finally get there. Because you don't just land a Richard III. You have to do some work to get one of them, you know. And you're like, oh, I'm here. I'm finally playing the most famous disabled fictional character in the world. I, Matt Fraser, am playing Richard III in Hull. <laughs> um, this is amazing. And then they're like, but it's not really, is it? Because... Shakespeare didn't really know what he was fucking talking about. <laughs> Here I am again, stuck in another able-bodied bloke's vision of what disability is. You know, and ultimately, I mean, I loved saying the lines. Behold mine arm, it is the work of the devil or whatever. It was super fun to do that. But um, ultimately, it was like, <laughs> eh, this is just like any other non-disabled bloke's version of stuff. Um, and then the other baddie I got to play was Jim, the murderer of a silent witness who was a nasty fellow who went around suicide oh, yes. chat rooms going, go on, do it. You know, like, like encouraging people. Yes, yes. And I thought that um, was quite brave of Silent Witness to... Um, bloody to hell! That role. What was, series 23 went nuts! It was me, there was Gary Robson. There was, it, it was like, it was a crit fest. Um, talking about... What? It was, it was great. But yeah, um, they did somewhat slash my part a bit. The original script had a lot more scenes, but it was enough. What was great about it was being able to act a baddie. It's so much more enjoyable than being able to act a good person. It's so much more dramatic. Um, and it really suited me because anyone could encourage someone to commit suicide. It wasn't like I had to wield a murder weapon that reactionary from Bristol would say, there was no way that man could have held that thing. You know, it, it, no one could argue about any of them things. So we were just left with, the you know the evil intent and I was happy. Julia Ford, the director, was happy with what I did. Um, and it was the best, you know, in many ways. It's most fun I've had playing a role, and I would love to play a baddie. I really, really would. And you know, we'd say about not, but but not for all the old reasons, as in I'm evil because I'm disabled, etc. Or or the apparently more sophisticated one, I'm evil because I understand the social model of disability. And I'm projecting that I'm only angry because of the way society has treated me. But when we get down to it at the end of the film, I will bring out all the deformity shit again. You know, that's the next level that we're experiencing. I'm like, no, please let a disabled person write a disabled baddie. You know, um, I think it will be really good. I would love to play uh, a James Bond villain because and, and that's another thing I just want to quickly get into. Some cliches of disability are okay. I think it's just they've always done them the wrong way. So James Bond loves to have its in-house lines <clears throat> that never happened to the other fella or, and, and so on and so forth, you know, where they just basically turn to the camera and go, yeah, this is a James Bond film. Um, when I'd be like, he'd, be look, he'd look at me, oh, it's you, you know, and, and, and it's very traditional to be a disabled James Bond villain. Not traditional to be a real one, but, you know, all James Bond villains have a disability of some sort, don't they? they Most do. of them. Yeah. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're the old guy. Are they still like Le Chiffre bleeding from his evil disabled eye you know, <laughs> yes. in Casino Royale? That was pretty special. 
Um, so I would do that, but that's the little devil in me that likes to flip the cliches. What I'm saying here is about the cliche. So I'm, I'm thinking about a father, that a, 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 a middle-aged man who's got nothing to live for. I don't know why. And suddenly we'd see a five-year-old girl. I don't know what, she's a refugee. She's been dumped out the back of a truck by the nasty people traffickers. There's a five-year-old girl and she needs help. And he's there and he sees the girl and he helps the girl and she needs to get back to her mum in Syria. And that's the story. He has no idea how to get to Syria. He has no money and he needs to start eliciting the help of people. Some people don't want to help. They want to fuck him up. Some people want to help. It's a highly dramatic story. He gets to Syria and it's like way out of his league, real Syria. He's like, what was I thinking that I could have? We get into a whole other load of shit. That's the story. Now, make the man disabled. How much better does the story immediately become? And the reason is, it's because it's jeopardy and worry and fear about the father managing to do the task, right? If you add impairment to that, it adds a delicious sort of added dongle or module. And it's not saying, oh, he won't be able to do it because, because the pluckiness of his will is what the film's about. But if you add disability, people go, oh, of course, he's disabled, they've always had to fight. Some bloke from Bristol, well, now he's got an East End accent, would be like, Oh, yeah, I can see that. Do you know what I mean? And, and, yeah, and yeah, yeah. program makers and very, clock makers and drama makers are missing out on flipping the cliche. It, I, I hereby say it's okay to use some of the cliches. You've just got to use them in the, the clever way. Because you're not demeaning the man's right to full humanship by making him disabled. Good God, he's trying to get a little waif back to Syria. What's more fully human than that? Barriers make for drama. Don't they? And, and disability can be a barrier to, sometimes to things. So I think there's room for a lot more sophisticated subtle writing coming forward, and it's going to come. But yeah, I would love to play a baddie, um, but I'm getting on a bit now, Colin. And um, the sort of roles I will get are the more character roles, the father, you know, the doctor, the lawyer or whatever, um, rather than the lead. I'm fine with that. It's nicer. What's what's next for you, Matt? Well, what's next for me for the next couple of months is is pushing this pitch to commission. So pitching for the for the next level Cryptales five, basically. Um, also waiting for acting work. You know, here's another thing that's happened, Colin. I, I hesitate to say this because I am aware there's a vast army of unemployed disabled actors who loathe me because in their mind I get all the work. Of course, if you could see it from my perspective, it's not like that. But I appreciate it might be for them. Um, but I just got offered three lines in something in a Channel 4 drama. And I told them to fuck off. I said, no, you don't get your, to hang your diversity hat on the smallest of hooks like that. You've got to put your money where your mouth is. You could do that to some some ingenue who just come out of drama school, but you can't do it to me and you shouldn't be doing it to any disabled actors. What's great is that my new agent was the one that said all that and then reported back to me. So, oh yeah, we told them off a strip. I said, did you? Oh yeah, we told them, what the hell do they think they're doing? It's outrageous. You can't go around doing that. They've got to treat disabled actors properly. <laughs> I was like, wow, I love my new agent. <laughs> but then I got offered a six-parter of the NAF cop in a bunch of cops, the untalented dickhead one who does magic tricks, 
because he knows nobody likes him and he's stupid. And I thought deeply about this and I thought, do I want to play that role? No. And this might be just my ego talking, but I feel I'm, a, I'm, I, I feel I'm due for slightly edgier roles than that. Um, cooler people, nasty people. Sure. I, I don't mind playing a fucker, but um, I, I just didn't feel that this unpopular, uncharismatic, unsuccessful, unsocial waste of space should be played by a disabled person at all. Because what the able-bodied writers and casters who are magnanimously trying to be open casting about it haven't realised is that if you put a disabled person in a role like that, people equate the disability with a being a loser. And that, that we can't have that. So I found myself turning that down as well with real hesitancy because it was a Netflix show and it would have meant I would have got my SAG points, which meant I would have got healthcare in America, which I've just lost. Um, and so... I, I kind of feel bad about that, but I know I, I asked a couple of other disabled people who I, who I trust and they, they corroborated my opinion. So I went with it and gulped and said, no, thank you. Um, I am hoping to get a bit of acting work though, Colin. Um, I would love some acting work. I loved American Horror Story. Me too. And I still get, I still get like a 10 pound check once every six months for that. I can't believe it's going on so long. I, I, I bought a subscription to Netflix when I, but I heard you were going to be on that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, I was disappointed not to be in subsequent series of it, but then so many other actors weren't either. Um, and now I think it's kind of lost its way a bit as, a, as, a, as an anthology series. Um, but yeah, that, that was exponentially the biggest thing in my life because suddenly American people knew who I was. And um, I still get stopped on the street all the time by people because I'm so easy to recognise. And so uh, I get a lot of shout outs from younger kids which is nice in America. Um, and uh, yeah, I will, I'll get something, Colin. I know I will. I'm not worried. I'll, I'll, I'll pick up some acting work. But I, t- I must admit right now, I'm kind of like, oh, is this why I'm here then? Was actually Cryptales the way I'm going? Sometimes you have to take a nod from, from God or whatever you believe in. For me, it's not God. I don't, I'm an atheist. But um, sometimes you have to look at the signs that are being sent to you. And maybe the signs are, no, Matt, you're not going to be just a lovely actor who picks up lovely work from time to time, swans into the awards and leaves again. You're going to be the guy that gets the project going, that gets the disabled people the work. You know, and if if that's what it seems to be right now, and hurrah for that, because I am an activist, you know, and it is probably the only way I can serve my deep activism is by getting other disabled people jobs in telly and film, you know. Um, and you're, you you mentioned that you're writing. That writing, uh, writing, 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 writing. I've had so many bloody ideas. I'm writing a deep history one. I'm writing a, a, a difficult transitionary tale set in 1977 in Florida and ca- California. That's a bugger to write, so I've left that for a bit. I'm writing a, an 1850 <laughs> street beggars and whores play set in a fake cripple begging pub called the hospital that actually existed in New York, where able-bodied people would pretend to be disabled to elicit charity from people. And then the ugly laws came along, which was a little known group of laws, which basically prevented you from begging based on how unsightly you were. Whoa, when when, when the hell was that? Yeah, this is like hidden history. So they were for about 30 years, only in five states, 
and it incremented. So it started in Chicago, then it went to San Francisco, then New Orleans, um, and finally ended up in New York where it was refined. But each time, like for example, for some reason, inexplicably, New Orleans, they, had, they were particularly bothered by deformed people. Whereas in Chicago, it was the war wounded they didn't want to see. Um, and anyway, it, it literally had us swept off the streets. The last fiscal independent outlet for a disabled person is begging. And that was taken away from them as well. And it was because they were all bunged into Christian homes for the charitable, i.e. institutions and workhouses. That was the beginning of proper American institutionalization in the Victorian era, like it was over here. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. there's this period of history in the Lower East Side, where I live. Um, I look around and I, I look at the building and think, that is actually the building where that thing happened, you know. And I really want to write this, because I found about this incredible woman called Mary Largo, who was a whore, a prostitute, who ran a gang of fake crippled beggars. Unheard of for a woman to run any gang in those days, let alone a gang of men. And I just thought, what would it be like if a real disabled person like, turned up in their fold? And what would it be like if they had a relationship with one of these people? Then, and then all my juices started blowing and I'm like, oh, there's a play in this. So I'm writing that as well. But because this telly stuff has just landed in my lap, I've cleared the decks. I'm just concentrating on this for the next two months because if I can help this get to the commission, you know, that will be a bloody watershed because it, what I'm hoping is that we, this, the reason I want Ruth to get the award, the reason I want the writers to get the writing is because I want them to stop playing us. I want them to stop writing shit about us, like come as you are. We all want that to stop, don't we? Absolutely. We all wanted to stop. And I honestly think that once the first heralded, awarded disabled actor stands there or sits there and goes, hey, see, it's not so bad when we do it ourselves, right? Could I ask one small favour? Could you all stop doing it if you're not disabled? That would be so nice. I would. If Ruth did that from the Oscars stage, no one would ever play a cripple again. I'm saying cripple. I'm using it as a sort of in-house disability affectionate. I'm sorry, I'll stop using it. Um, you know what I mean. Yes. I, I, yeah, I, I'm, yeah. Maybe I'm being naive, like I was when I was 28. But I honestly think that we're almost at the precipice of killing this shit stone dead. And if that's the only thing I'm going to see in my acting career in my life, then I bloody well want to see it because I can't take it anymore. When, I, when, you know, and I was guilty. I was, I was saying about those three non-white actors who played the three disabled people in Come As You Are. I was guilty of thinking, guys, you should have done better. As non-white people, you know what the argument is, and yet you still did it. But I don't have a right as a white person to say that. But I found myself thinking it, a bit ashamed of it, but that's what anger does to a person, isn't it? Makes you, makes you have shameful thoughts. Big thank you to Matt Fraser for your openness and frankness there in talking to us about cryptos and disability representation on the screen lovely to talk to you as always and we really do hope that this is the beginning of something new in terms of disability representation
Visit greyeye.org and disabilityarts.online for details of productions, events, interviews, opinions, reviews and learning opportunities.